Welcome, everybody. So glad you could be here today. And if this is your very first time, man, special welcome to you. And uh, I know looking for a church is hard. And um, I want to let you know you have found the perfect one. And um, no, no, there's no such thing as a perfect church. But uh, we're thankful that you're here today, and if the Lord leads you this direction, we'd love to have you, and I hope you get to know you better, and, and hope today and other days answers questions. But if you have any questions at all, come find me after church. I'd love to meet you and, and uh, answer anything that, you, that I am able to answer. So anyway, we're glad you're here. We're in a series right now called uh, Rescued, and we've been, for the last 11 weeks or so, studying our way uh, through the book of Exodus. And we're gonna continue that today. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. We're gonna be there today. We're gonna be moving into Exodus chapter 13 as well. And as you're finding that, let me just remind you that, uh, of something that was said on the announcements this morning. We're gonna press pause on the Rescued series after this weekend, just like we did with our Origins series last year. And uh, we'll pick it up again in January, but we're gonna focus in on, on the Christmas season. Can you believe it's Thanksgiving already on Thursday? Is that just me or did that sneak up on everybody? You know, um, I don't know who said this in the church. Somebody on staff said this. I think this came out of our primetimers group. I, I, somebody can tell me who said this later, but, but they said, uh, you know, I, I wonder, I'm getting older and things seem to go faster. Uh, that's true, you know, it, it is. And uh, one of our primetimers said, I don't remember who, they said, you know, getting older is like a roll of toilet paper. <laughs> the closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. All right, that's just, it. It feels that way, you know, so anyway, Thursday is Thanksgiving, I wasn't quite ready for that, and then Christmas is upon us, and it's like, wow, but we're doing a, a Christmas series called The Cast of Christmas, I've been working on it, very excited about it, I want to invite you to invite, I want to encourage you to invite your friends to come, this would be a great series to invite your friends to come and be a part of, and then we'll pick up um, Exodus uh, back in January after Christmas. Now, I want to let you know, uh, we are having seven, that's right, seven uh, Christmas Eve candlelight services. So you heard me correctly, seven. We're going, you guys realize Christmas is on Sunday this year? Did, did, did you make, you're aware of that? Um, it's always weird when Christmas is on Sunday. Should I go to church? Should I not go to church? We're gonna find out who the real Christians are on Christmas. That's what we're gonna find out. No, here's what we're doing. I'm gonna let you off the hook, all right? So we're gonna have two services on Friday night, the 23rd. There's gonna be four services on Saturday, Christmas Eve, and one on Sunday morning at 10 a.m., and they are all identical, okay? You are welcome to come all seven. I don't know why anybody would want to do that. I don't even wanna be here for all seven. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'll be here. I'm, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. You come to whichever one you want. They're all identical. You pick the one that works best for your family. Friday night's it, come Friday. Saturday, come Saturday. We'll all have different plans and travel, but uh, that's how it's gonna work this year, seven, and they're all gonna be incredible. These candlelight services, very special, and so I wanna give you a heads up on that. Have you found Exodus 12? That's where we're gonna be today, and where we left off last week was with uh, the Passover instructions and all these specific things that, that we're learning about on that night of the 10th, Plague, where the death angel, the angel of death, whatever name you want to give him, God's destroyer is what the Bible calls him, comes through to all the houses of Egypt. And, um, and, and it's, it's, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating part of the story uh, of Exodus. And it all came about because why? Pharaoh refused to let the people go. I've often wondered if he would just have softened himself and say, God, Whatever you're doing, I, I'll do it. Can you imagine? I would imagine history would have been changed completely 
had, had Pharaoh done that. But we knew from the beginning, Pharaoh was not gonna do that. He hardened his heart. And now the death angel came, the 10th plague, and uh, every home in Egypt lost somebody. Took the firstborn son of every family and of every animal. However, that very night, what else happened? That same destroyer, he did what? He passed over the homes of the Israelites. Why did he pass over the homes of the Israelites? Because their homes were covered by the blood of the lamb. So when he, it was the identified mark. This is the death angel came and said, oh, you're with God. I'm gonna keep going. Really powerful. Now, I hope you're pulling everything you can out of the, out of the text on that. And so that very night of the 10th plague, God instituted the Passover. And this is what we've been studying about these last few weeks. This Passover meal specifically with all of these instructions they had to follow. And this meal was to be celebrated every year going forward as a lasting remembrance of how God had delivered him. And I, you know, the Bible does a great job, in my opinion, of detailing for us the events of that night. But I don't know if any of us can really appreciate what it was like to be there unless you were there. I, I'm glad I wasn't there. I mean, on either side of this, I'm glad I wasn't there. Because what a horrible, horrible thing to experience that night. But when it was all over, when the plague was done, this is what happened. Look at chapter 12, verse 31. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said, and go, and bless me also. Boy, this is a different look for Pharaoh, isn't it? This doesn't sound like the same guy we've been learning about. I, do you remember the last interaction that Pharaoh had with Moses? It didn't end so well, did it? Well, well how did it end last time? Mo, Moses said what? Or excuse me, Pharaoh said what to Moses? The day I see your face again, you're gonna die. That's a pretty strong threat. And obviously he's looking at Moses' face again and he is not following through on that threat. Something has definitely changed since these two guys saw each other last. And I can tell you what changed. The death angel came. Pharaoh suffered a great loss. His whole people suffered a tremendous loss. And so I don't think on his mind, he, probably, he maybe didn't even remember his last words. But when he saw Moses again, he only had one thing he wanted to say. And it's get out of here. Get out of here. Leave. You can go. All, all, all chains are gone. Just leave. And then, did you catch this weird thing he said at the very end? Oh, and also bless me. Don't you find that an odd thing for somebody like that to say? And I wish, I was just talking to somebody after the last service, I wish there was another verse right after that that said, and what he meant by that was, we don't have that verse. What did he mean? And bless me also. Was this a concession like you win, I lost? That doesn't make a lot of sense when you think about the context because shortly after this, he's gonna harden his heart again and he's gonna chase after them. So it doesn't sound like a concession phrase. It's difficult to know exactly what he meant by this. I wasn't there. I wasn't in the room. I didn't hear the tone. I, didn't, I wasn't there. But as I thought about this, I wonder, and I don't know if I'm right, but I wonder if this maybe is more of a phrase of liability, personal liability. Maybe this was his way of saying, is there any blessing left for me or just blame? 
could you, could you bless me and not blame me for all of this? I don't want all the blame and shame. It can't all be my fault, can it? I don't know exactly what was going on in that noggin of his that night. But he says, bless me also. I, I tend to think maybe it had something to do with, don't blame me, please. Was it a moment of humility? Remorse? Was it mockery? I, I don't know. But we do know this, it was short-lived, wasn't it? <laughs> and he all backed old Pharaoh ways here real soon. And that's, we'll find out when we reconvene in January. So that was Pharaoh's response to the 10th plague. What, were, what was the Egyptians' response to the 10th plague? Well, the very next verse tells us. Look at verse 33. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise, they said, we will all die. Now that was their response to the 10th plague. They were ready to see the Israelites go. There was not one Egyptian that wanted the Israelites to stay one second longer. And their assumption was this, if you stay here any longer, we will certainly die. Why would they draw that conclusion? I can tell you, I'm confident they were not being overdramatic when they said we're all gonna die. Sometimes we're a little overdramatic with that phrase. Have you ever talked about something like, I'm gonna die? Let me tell you something about me. I hate standing in line. I can handle it as long as it makes sense to stand there. But when I'm standing in line, I don't know, maybe you're like me. It's like there's an hourglass, a sand hourglass that gets flipped in my brain. And sometimes that sand moves fast and sometimes that sand moves slow. And if in my brain I feel like I've stood here long enough, something physical happens to me. It's like, I can't stand this. I'm gonna die. Um, not long ago, my wife came to me and she said, hey, will you take me to Pahuska, Oklahoma for lunch? <laughs> what's in Pahuska, Oklahoma? Some of you know what's in Pahuska, Oklahoma. It's the Pioneer Woman. I don't know anything about her, but evidently she's got a restaurant and she's got a store. And my wife wanted to go. So I said, sure, let's go. It sounds like fun. So we went over there and we get there and they're like, yes, your wait will be about an hour and 20 minutes. You got to stand outside. And my, uh-uh. It was 103 degrees that day, no shade. And we're standing along this building and the, and the sand ran out real fast. Am I, I'm not doing it. And I said to my wife, if this line doesn't move in the next 30 seconds, I'm going to die. Well, I didn't die that day and I've never died standing in line but I tend to be a little overdramatic and so do you at some things like this. But the Egyptians were not being overdramatic. If you stay here another second, we're going to die. That was their conclusion. They had no knowledge of whether or not this plague number 10 was the last one or not. Here's what they knew. We've lost everything. We don't have anything left. Our country is ravaged and now we've lost a couple hundred thousand of our community, yes. It was a correct assumption. If we stay here, the only thing, that, if you guys stay here, the only thing we have left for you to take is the air in our lungs. And you will certainly take it and we will die. So I want you to see in the text, when it says the Egyptians are like, please hurry and leave. It was more like, you get out of here right now before we're, we're all going to die. They're not being over dramatic at all. 
So Pharaoh was like, time to go, please bless me. And the Egyptians were like, get out of here right now. Now look at verse 34. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added. This is an important detail from Passover. Remember from last week, God said, don't put the yeast in the bread. In other words, you're gonna be leaving and you can't have anything tying you to Egypt. Don't be like, but I got dough rising. I can't move it, I can't leave. God said, don't put the yeast in it. So they put all the bread on their backs. They carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. In other words, grab the dough, grab your stuff and stop at Tim and Kathy's house for all their gold and silver on your way out of town. It's exactly, it's exactly what happened. Sorry if anybody here is named Tim and Kathy. It's just the words that popped in my, it's just name, so. No one's showing up to your house today for gold and silver, just so you know. This says in verse 36, the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people and they gave them whatever they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. Let me tell you, this is exactly how much they wanted the Israelites to leave. They were like, please leave and take everything I've got with you. Take it all. You want this gold ring? Take it. Where's grandma's earrings that she left us when she died? Get the gold, get the silver earrings. Our plates, they're made out of silver. The silver, you can sell this at a pawn shop. This will be good for something. Take this. You know, kids, go under the bed. There's a bag of gold coins. We went through Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. That's the emergency fund. Get it and give it to him. This is how bad they wanted them gone. Get out of here. Take everything. And, and so the Israelites left. And this is how they plundered the Egyptians. They took basically the wealth of the country with them. And this is also a callback. This is one of those places in the Bible where we see the harmony of scriptures. Back in Genesis chapter 15, God said to Abraham hundreds of years earlier, he said, out of you is gonna come a mighty nation. They're gonna be enslaved in a country that's not their own. But I will punish the nation that, that makes them slaves, and they will go out of that country with great possession. This is a place in the Bible that we can look to and go, God keeps his word. God keeps his word. This is the fulfillment of Genesis 15. Then it says in verse 37, as we just walk down through the text today, the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. There were about, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children, this is no little group of people. 600,000 men. Why did they only count the men? I don't know. But if you imagine most of those guys had wives and then they had families, most Bible scholars say that there was about two million people that walked out of Egypt on that day. That is a lot of people. That, that is a huge group of people. Is there any wonder when you think about two million people, why at the very beginning of the book of Exodus, Pharaoh was afraid of them? And he looked out and saw how vast they were becoming. And, and he was worried that they would turn on the Egyptians and that maybe they would join forces with their enemies and, and, and overtake the Egyptian and take it as their own. Yeah, there was some real fear. This is some of the things that drove Pharaoh to try to do some, some population control. Remember, throw the firstborn in the river. This is why he made them slaves, to suppress them. This is no little group of people. I tried to find a picture of two million people and I found out it doesn't exist. I, I, if it does, I'm not aware. Maybe if you find it, let me know. But I wonder, what does two million people, maybe there's a satellite picture, maybe there's a blimp up in the sky, a balloon, takes a picture. Was there ever a two million person gathering? I couldn't find it. 
I'm trying to visualize what this looks like. But then I came across a picture that was snapped in 1987 and it was like the light bulb went off. Ah, it's something like that. I wanna show you this picture and you're gonna recognize it immediately. What's this place? It's the Golden Gate Bridge. That's right, it's one of the most iconic um, marks on our country. I mean, it's the Golden Gate Bridge, it's, it's famous. In 1987, they did a 50th anniversary celebration of the opening of this bridge. And the, the people that organized this celebration, they said the whole thing is gonna culminate with a walk across the bridge. Who's walked across the bridge? Who has paid money to drive across the bridge? I've, I've done that. It cost how much to go across this bridge? Anyway, sore spot. Um, anyway. So people started to walk across the bridge and a lot of people walked across the bridge. There were so many people on the bridge that the, the, Golden, the, the Golden Gate Bridge, which is normally an arced bridge, flattened out. They call it the day the bridge flattened. Um, let me ask you a question. On the picture behind me, how many people do you think were on the bridge that day walking from this end? And it goes all the way across, that packed. How, how many people do you think? You, you throw out some guesses, I don't mind. What do you guys think? 700,000 a herd? Well, what's some other numbers? Two, mil two million, two million. I, I think the bridge would have come down with two million people, but I would have, that would have been quite a picture. That would have been the picture. Right? You're all good, good guesses. They're estimating that there's about 300,000 people on the bridge that day. 300,000. And they're all walking. And I've read all the testimonies from people, many of the testimonies, and most people say it was a very unpleasant experience. Especially in about the middle of the, the, the walk when um, it got jammed up and it wouldn't move. And they said we were shoulder to shoulder for two hours. And I promise you, if I was there, I'd have been like, I'm gonna die. This thing, <laughs> this thing doesn't move, I'm gonna die. I would have not have done well on the bridge. So I look at this picture and people are moving. That's 300,000 people. The Israelites is like six of those bridges side by side all moving out together. That's the amount of people we're talking about. And for some strange, odd reason, that helps me see it. And maybe that helps you see it as well. We're not talking about a small group at all. We are talking about a very, very large, large group. And this is another fulfillment of God. What did God tell Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You're gonna multiply greatly, you're gonna be fruitful and you're gonna grow into a mighty nation. And friends, I'm gonna tell you, two million people walking out of, out of Egypt on one day. You know, I think God's word came to be. Now there's an interesting detail that I find in the text and maybe you saw this when, when you were studying it, or, but it's an easy detail to just read right by and not think anything about. And the detail's in verse 38. It says, many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. And my question is this, who were these many other people? Who, who were they? We, we're so used to saying, and the Israelites left Egypt. And then there were some ride-alongs. Some translations of the Bible say, a mixed multitude went up with the Israelites out of Egypt. Who are these people? Well, I hate to break it to you, but the Bible doesn't really tell us who they are. 
Um, we're not going to get into this in our Exodus series, but if you get on into Leviticus and Numbers, especially Numbers chapter 11, this mixed multitude language comes up again, and it wasn't a positive thing for the Israelites. Who were these people? Well, obviously, they, uh, they were among the Egyptian people. We've already seen in this series that even some of Pharaoh's officials during the plagues started to believe Moses. You might remember the detail during the, the plague of the hail. Moses said, it's coming. And what did Pharaoh's officials do? They ran home to try to protect their stuff because they believed. By the time you get to Exodus chapter 11, uh, the Bible tells us that all of Egypt highly regarded Moses. Seems like the whole country was starting to believe, what, or many of them anyway, what Moses was saying. And, and my guess would be that some of this mixed multitude would be some of Pharaoh's officials, some of the Egyptians, who were like, I don't know if I believe all that stuff, but their future looks brighter than mine. And off they go. You know what else it could have been? You know, the, the, we don't, the, Exodus doesn't say a whole lot about this. Later on, we learn that the Israelites struggled with idol worship too, even while they were in Egypt. And even though they, were their, they had their own identity, there was definitely cross-cultural blends with the Egyptians happening. It's not far outside the imagination, we see this all happening through Israel's history, that there was a lot of intermarrying happening with the Egyptians. And, and there were families that were together. That was more of a, a mixed uh, uh, heritage. So you might have grandma who was an Israelite who fell in love with an Egyptian and they started a family and now they've got children and grandchildren. And some of this mixed multitude could have very easily been, well, if grandma's leaving, the whole family's going with her. We're not breaking up the family. And so you have this mixed multitude that this blended multitude that is going with them. Whoever they were, they weren't Israelites. They were not part of God's chosen nation. But I want you to see a very important detail here. It's very important. It transcends even to us today. God didn't stop them from leaving with the Israelites. Now God did lay down some very specific guidelines for this mixed multitude, but he did not stop them. Some of those guidelines specifically had to deal with the Passover meal. Who was allowed to eat it and who wasn't? This mixed multitude of people that came out with them, they were not allowed to eat the Passover with them. Nuh-uh, no, no, no. The Passover meal was only allowed for God's chosen nation. And this mixed multitude was not that. Now let me show you where this instruction comes from. Look at chapter 12, verse 43. For the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, these are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you have bought may eat it after you, have hit them, after you circumcised him. But a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. Why such a rule? It's because the Passover was special. And it was personal for the Israelites. What did the Passover represent? It represented their deliverance from, from death. That's what it represented. It's this, it represents a special relationship that God has with this people. And it wasn't for anyone else. But here's the question. Does that mean that God didn't care about anybody else? Not a strong response from the church today on that one. Because God set up rules and said the Passover is for this group, nobody else can touch it, does that mean that God didn't care 
about anybody else. So, so we read on into the New Testament. What did Jesus tell his disciples? Go into all the worlds and make disciples of all nations. We, we know God's got a plan for the whole world. He's doing something special in this season with the Israelites. It is this people that is going to bring the Messiah into the world. Now God's got a plan for everybody else, but it's interesting these rules he laid down. Look at verse 48. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in the household circumcised. So in other words, this, it's like God's like, I know this conversation is gonna come up. There's gonna be people who, who, whether they're this mixed multitude, they're people that come and join you, they're stragglers, they come along, they're people, whatever it is, and they're gonna say, hey, can I join you for the Passover? Can I come? And God's like, yeah, they can come if they have surgery. <laughs> These are God's rules. This is how he set it up. If all the males in that household will become circumcised, then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. The law, the same law applies both to the native born and to the foreigner residing among you. In other words, if they really want to eat this meal, then they have to not just join you because they want to, they have to go, and here's the heart of this, they have to go all in. And as a, as a, during the time of the Exodus, these early days of the Israelite nation, what did all in with what God was doing look like and what did it require? It required circumcision. That was the physical identifier of God's chosen nation. They would have to become, in every sense of the way of, of talking about it, they would have to become Israelites in every way. They would have to identify with the promise of God and they would have to live according to godly standards. In every way, they would have to become holy and sanctified unto the Lord to be a part of this special remembrance that only applies to those people who are holy and, and sanctified unto God. They had to go all in. And I don't want you to miss this very powerful detail about God that, that is here in the text. There are people today who choose to read the Old Testament and they, they see God through these lenses. He is an angry God. He's an uncaring God. Um, he is a vengeful God. Maybe you've heard people say things like this. Maybe you thought of him yourself. God is, has no grace in the Old Testament. But you know what? Somehow, in the New Testament, he turns into this loving, gracious, caring God. And that's just not true. The God who created the world is the same God all the way through it. And he doesn't change. In fact, if you wanna know what I think, I see just as much love, grace, and mercy in the Old Testament as I do in the New Testament. And this is certainly one of those places. Some people say, I see rules. I see grace. God could have said this, Fooey on all of you who aren't Israelites. Stay behind. Suffer with the rest of the Egyptians. Suffer in your debauchery and your idolatry. I don't want you. You stay behind. God was within his right to do it. He could have said, Moses, you get everybody that's not a part of what we're doing out of here. I don't want to see him again. He could have done that. But he let him come. And he also gave them an opportunity to change their ways. 
And he gave them an open-handed invitation to align with this new thing that God was doing and his standards. And you know what? Circumcision was the ticket. That proved right there that you are all in with God. It's like this idea. You could have come from somewhere else, but you could identify with what we're doing now and God would have welcomed you to come and join it. God's grace has not changed. I think about what's happening in the Exodus and is it really all that different than God's invitation to every single person in this world today, regardless of who you are or your family, where you were born, what language you speak, the color of your skin, the background that you have, the number of sins that you've committed or the times that you've failed and screwed everything up. The invitation to change your ways and align with God and align with his standards and his plan and identify with him, that, my friends, is still available to any single person, anybody in the world today that wants to accept that invitation and go all the way with God, all the way to the real promised land, which will be in heaven one day. That invitation is still there. We don't worship a different God. We worship a grace-filled God. But not everybody in this mixed multitude accepted God's extended hand. They were among them, but they really weren't with them. And, and later on, we see that deeper into the first five books of the, of the Old Testament. And you know, moving forward with, the, with our study in Exodus, there's gonna be times that the Israelites are gonna do some things when we come back in January that are gonna be real head scratchers. And maybe it had something to do with the fact that there were people who were with them, but they were not aligned with them. Just a few chapters off into the future, we're gonna come across this time at the mountain of God when Moses is up on the mountain for a long time and the people get very impatient. And what do they do? They take all that gold that they plundered from, from Egypt and they form a golden calf and they dance around it, pray to it, worship it. Whose idea was that? Could it have been, and again, I'm throwing an idea, the Bible doesn't say. Could it have been the fact that there were people who were among them but not really with them that were in the crowd saying, we know a better way. Maybe God's forgotten us. Maybe he's moved on. Maybe Moses is gone. Maybe there's a God who will pay attention. Could it have been this mixed multitude? There's gonna come times where the Israelites are gonna be like, Life's pretty hard out here in the wilderness. Remember how good we had it in Egypt? Who was saying that in the crowd? Could it have been people who were among them but not really with them? There is a real spiritual <laughs> um, idea here. And it, even in the church today. You think about the church in America. How many people are among the church, but they're not really aligned with God's will. And could that be one of the main reasons for why the church in America today is having so many problems? Can't seem to agree on what the Bible says, cannot agree on what lifestyles are approved by God and which isn't, and how some of the craziest, whacked out ideas on the planet are born in the church. Hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. Verse 40. 
Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. The Lord uh, had said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be fruitful, increase in number, and, all, and it's coming true. 430 years later, God's words came to be. Now, before we completely move on from this 10th plague and join the Israelites out on the shores of the Red Sea, there is one more detail that, that is directly related to Passover that we need to spend a little bit of time with this morning. And it's in chapter 13, verse one. There is um, one more thing that God wants the Israelites to do. And it's an instruction that will take effect when they get to the promised land, but Moses delivers the news here at Passover. It says this in 13, verse one. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether animal or human or animal. The word consecrate really is the word to focus on in this instruction. That word consecrate means to set apart, to separate. It, uh, it's closely tied to this concept of being holy. You consecrate it, it belongs to God. It's the first of what you have, it is his. You give it to him. So what he's saying to the Israelites here is, is the firstborn belongs to me. You set it apart and it's holy unto me. Now it's not like God is creating a whole army of firstborns that will be his, no, not that. It's a spiritual movement. It's an understanding. It's a submission. It's a humility. God, you first and this is yours. So if you think about some of these instructions, you have this Passover celebration that is a yearly reminder of God's power and deliverance. But now, every time there is a birth among the people of God, every time, whether it be a human or an animal that came into the world, it's a reminder also of what God has done. The firstborn belong to God. And the instructions for this and the reasons behind it are found in verse 11. Jump down to verse 11. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, that's the promised land, they don't know it yet, but it's still 40 years off in the future. And he gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors. You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. So there's an interesting detail, I don't want to be confused. When the firstborn of a donkey is, is born, that, it's an unclean animal, which we're not even doing any of that stuff yet. It's an unclean animal, and, if you want, and donkeys were very useful to the Israelites. If you want to keep that firstborn, it has to be redeemed, and you actually have to redeem it by sacrificing a lamb. And if you're unwilling to sacrifice a lamb to keep that firstborn donkey, then this is what you do. If you don't redeem it, break its neck, redeem every firstborn among your sons. This, this is hard for us, a concept that's hard to really wrap our minds around because it's not our behavior today. And this is not what is required of us today. We've moved on from the sacrificial system. But this language of redeeming every firstborn son is directly related to the 10th plague and Passover. And here's how it's connected. God destroyed the firstborn of the Egyptians, both man and animal. God did that. And now 
he is redeeming the firstborn of the Israelites. They belong to him. The pendulum swings. God spared and destroyed. And as it swings back, God is redeeming. And this a balancing thing that happens between God and this relationship that he's having with his people. And friends, let me just tell you this. There is a principle here. The overarching thing that's happening. It's like there's a lot of details with this that I'm gonna invite you to do your own deep dive and learn more. But there is this overarching principle that started with God and the Israelites and it overlays with God and his church today. And it's this principle. Ready? God first. There is a tone being set among the people of God and it's this, God first. It's like saying, God, you delivered me. Now all of me, everything I am, all that I've got, now it's yours. I would, believe, I would wanna believe that, that when God laid this down, like, hey, no matter what you do, I want you to look to me first. What belongs to God first? That there would be this mentality developed among the people of God that not only, <coughs> Lord, can you have my first, but you can have my second, and you can have my third. In fact, there is nothing that I have, Lord, that doesn't belong to you, and nothing that I have, Lord, that doesn't come from you, and nothing that I have that I'm willing to give to you should you need it. I'm all yours, Lord. There is this overarching concept, this principle, God first. And I can tell you, friends, that right there is still a mentality that I believe he wants all of us to have. God, it's yours. Lord, I'm just a steward of your blessing. That blessing can be big or small in the eyes of the world, but I'm still a steward of it, and it belongs to you. It's not the amount, it's the mentality. It's not the amount, it's the willingness. It's not the amount, it's the appreciation for what God has done. God first. So when you go in the promised land, this is how you're gonna do it. And I don't wanna get real technical here. Again, I'm gonna invite you to your own deep dive and I know some of you love to peel back more of these layers and I'm gonna encourage you to do it. But in Numbers chapter 18, we get uh, a sense, some teaching about what it means to redeem these children. There was something they had to do once they got to the promised land. In verse 16, it just says this. When they are a month old, you must redeem them at the redemption price set at five shekels of silver. Something you had to do. It was like an offering. It was a tribute to God. It's a redemption thing. And again, it's, it's a little bit like, really? I didn't know that detail was in the Bible. Oh, I should preach a series sometime called All the Things You Didn't Know Was in the Bible. Now that would be interesting, isn't it? There was also instructions, very specific instructions for um, some parents who just had delivered a child and what they needed to do and how they were supposed to bring that child to the priest and make an offering. This is part of the consecration redeeming process. They were supposed to bring a lamb to the priest and sacrifice that lamb as part of the redemption, consecration of their child. Leviticus 12 teaches us this, that if, if the family cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two pigeons. Again, do your own deep dive, but I'm tell you that all of this system, all of these instructions that God is, is giving to the Israelites about redeeming the firstborn son, all of it was in preparation for the coming of Jesus one day when he would become the once and for all sacrifice for the sins of the world. And as the Passover lamb is a picture of Jesus, this redeeming of the firstborn is a picture of what the Lord is gonna do for each one of us. He will redeem us and he'll do it on the cross. All of this, whether you really understand the details or not, all comes back to Jesus 
Jesus. All is setting the stage for what Jesus is gonna do one day when he comes as the Redeemer. Now, with these little details, it actually sheds some light on some of the actions that Joseph and Mary, the earthly parents of Jesus, did when he was born. We're getting ready to move into the holiday Christmas season. We're gonna talk a lot about the birth of Jesus. But in Luke chapter two, verse 22, Jesus was born. And this actually helps us understand why his parents did what they did. It says this, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Sometimes we read that in isolation and we're like, why did they do that? They are obeying the law of Moses that said the firstborn must be consecrated to the Lord. They are bringing Jesus, the firstborn male, and they're consecrating him to the Lord. They're following scripture. And to offer a sacrifice, verse 24, in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, now catch this detail, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Where did we just read that? Leviticus 12. Why did they bring that offering instead of a lamb? It's because they were poor. They couldn't afford it. And this was a substitute sacrifice. They could afford two young pigeons or two young doves. Something that will probably require some quiet reflection. It does for me. Joseph and Mary brought Jesus and they were redeeming the redeemer. You, you, you contemplate in quiet meditation over that one. But again, like with the Passover meal, this consecration of the firstborn is God gifting the parents a teaching tool for future generations. Just like the Passover meal, when the kids say, why are we eating this meal and why is this all about? You tell them about the God's deliverance. But now if you look at 14, this consecration of the firstborn is also a teaching tool. Look what it says. In the days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Okay, you say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. How do you like that as a bedtime story for your kids? It's a teaching tool. The adults were the living links to the next generation. Are you starting to get the theme here? God doesn't want them to forget what he did for them. There's things that they do on a regular basis that are yearly and part of the normal, uh, normal routine of life that will help them remember and never take their eyes off the fact that God did a mighty thing for them. Which brings us to the second overarching all-time principle that started in Exodus but applies to us today. And it's simply this, never forget. Church, there are things that the Lord never wants you to forget, ever. And we ask this question, and if you've never asked it, I'm gonna ask it for you. How do I stay on the straight and narrow with God? The Lord saved you because he died on the cross. You didn't save yourself. He did that for you. I don't believe that walking with the Lord is like a tightrope that some days you're in and some days you're out. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. But when you walk in alignment with God every day in his will, how do you do that? 
How do you do it? Well, I think, I think you do it these two ways. You, you never take your eyes off the fact that God comes first in everything. God first in everything. All I've got, every, everything belongs, God first. There is a reason why the 10 commandments start off. You shall have no other gods before me. God first. How else? Never forget what he did for you. Never forget. Friends, I'm telling you, you're gonna walk in alignment with God. It's much easier to do when you never get distracted from these two all-time principles. God first, never forget my deliverance. God first, never forget my salvation. God first, he did it for me for these purposes. God first, he saved me. God first, I'll never forget it. God first, he saved me. I'll never forget Friends, I'm encouraging you as a church, take these principles, these lessons started in the Old Testament, apply to our lives today. God first, never forget what he did for you. And if you'll do that, I think you're gonna enjoy your Christian life a whole lot more than trying to figure it out all on your own. God first, don't ever forget what he did for you. Let me pray for you. Lord, give you praise today. Thank you, God, for how you save us, how you redeemed us on the cross. And Lord, admittedly, there's things that we're reading here in Exodus that, that are foreign concepts to us. In, in our time today, in, our, in, in Arkansas, in the year 2022, sacrifices, redemption, some of these, you know, bring the firstborn male. It's things that are a little bit foreign to our everyday understanding and thinking. But what is not foreign is that what these set the stage for, that we are to put you first in everything that we do, and we are to never forget the sacrifice you made for us on the cross. So Lord, we declare right here, our church family, Lord, to the best of our ability with all that we've got, Lord, we give it to you. This is your church, not our church. This is what you're doing more than anything else. So Lord, we acknowledge you, you are first. And we will never forget why we are here and why we have a hope of salvation one day. We will never forget that we are going to heaven and the reasons for why we're going to heaven is because you paid it all. So Lord, you're first and we will never forget what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.